The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Women with Balls podcast where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. Happy New Year. Um, we have some great guests lined up for 2022, but before we go ahead with that, we're going to start with an episode we recorded shortly before the Christmas break. My guest today debated post-devolution Britain at Conservative Party Conference age 15. She was born and raised in Cheshire before moving to York, where she graduated with a BA in History and Politics. Prior to her political career, she had worked in marketing and media and was once an international marketing communications manager for WWE. Yes, that is wrestling. Leaving the world of physical entertainment behind her, she was elected in 2015 as the MP for Chippenham, and since then she has been re-elected twice and is now viewed as a rising star. Starting as a member of the Education Select Committee, becoming a whip, to then being appointed a minister, and becoming Minister of State for Higher and Further Education in the latest reshuffle. My guest today is Michelle Donnellan. Now on this podcast to start, I always ask, was yours a happy childhood? I certainly would. I think, it, yeah, my childhood was amazing. I grew up in Cheshire in a small little village with my mum, dad and a little sister. So apart from our fights, it was really good. Now, the New Statesman pointed out that you decided politics would be your choice of career age six. Yeah. We've had various ministers on this podcast and to raise coffee, I think, had my favourite early ambition which was to be a mechanic nun (laughs) but yours was a specific type of politician how did it how did it come about yeah so I wasn't the most popular of kids at school shall we say because it wasn't that trendy I mean I'm not sure it's that trendy now but um (laughs) well I first of all saw Margaret Thatcher on the tv when I was six and I thought golly that was amazing and I asked my mum about it and I didn't properly understand and then I learned more and more about it and thought it was really interesting I mean actually what my whole idea was that I would become a very very successful pop star That's good. Gain the youth vote, be really popular, and then go into politics. And I was reinforced when I found out that Ronald Reagan existed, and he'd done that with acting. And then my mum shattered my illusions when she told me I desperately was terrible at singing, so I had to drop that part and just stick to the politics. Okay, right. I like that you're already working at how you'll get to the the point. So growing up in your family, was politics discussed much at the dinner table? No, I think my dad still wonders whether I'm the postman's or something, um, because my family are very, very unpolitical. My granddad was interested in it, but apart from that, no interest at all. But I grew up in an area where people didn't have the same opportunities that people have in other parts of the country. And I sort of felt the sense of injustice at that. And also the connectivity from our area was very poor. For instance, I'd gone to London once by the age of 16. I didn't have the opportunities to do internships or have the same role models in certain areas. And I know a number of my friends felt the same. And so I think that really inspired me to do something about it. And... I think I mentioned in the introduction that at 15 you spoke at Conservative mm. Party Conference. So what was the point when you started identifying as a Conservative? Was it when you aged 60, Margaret Thatcher, or was it a bit, you know... I can't remember yeah. the exact age. Yeah. The more I learnt about politics, the more I learnt about which political party stood for what, the more I decided I was more aligned to the Conservative Party because I believe in the power of the individual and that if you give people the tools and the skills to be able to achieve, they will do and they'll flourish. And I believe very strongly in a meritocracy. 
So I think it was a gradual process, definitely not overnight. I actually wanted to speak at party conference the year before, but I didn't really get my rear into gear to do it. And there was an issue about me joining the party because they kept saying I was too young when I tried at 13, so... I know because we all had the memories of the you know young Hague and things yeah, so. yeah well, I was determined to be him so I was like 15 is my last year now because I'm naturally quite competitive what was it like when you got there were people excited to see a young Tory because sometimes I think it, even actually at today's mm. Tory conference we had like millennials I think mm. under Theresa May a bit but it is I say it's a certain age demographic yeah yeah definitely it was it was amazing I wanted to get the video but at the time my parents couldn't afford to pay for the video so I'm sure it's somewhere on on archive now you go and study at York University and that has politics as part of the degree so at that point did you know you wanted to be a politician I know age six you did but were you still thinking that having gone through school I never changed my mind so yeah (laughs) I'm quite stubborn (laughs) what was the York University politics scene like we hear a lot about Mm. Oxbridge and all these things but how was it for you Yeah, it was good. I met some of my uh, very best friends when I was at university. I wouldn't say it was the very best years of my life, like some people do. I much preferred Sixth Form College, if I'm I'm honest. And then after university, when I uh, sought to travel and and really forged my career. So you graduate and you don't go into politics straight away. I mentioned in the introduction one of your jobs, but I think the striking thing is that you worked for the Worldwide Wrestling Entertainment. So I wondered if you could tell us how that came about. Yeah. And, so, and anything before that that you think is relevant. Yeah, I finished university and I decided I really wanted to travel and gain more sort of life experience in the world, but at the same time progress a career. And so I worked in the day as an expenses administrator and in the evening as a waitress, so basically two full-time jobs in order to get enough money to go to Australia where I did an internship with Marie Claire, which was totally like the devil wears Prada. It was just completely like that. And Boxes, then I, yeah, um, clothes. Yes, yeah, yeah, lots of sample and, sales, yeah, very highly strung people. Yeah, because I did a journalism master, so I entered at a fashion magazine very yeah. briefly, but I found it quite stressful. It, it was quite stressful. <laughs> then I got a job within the publishing house, and after that came back for Sky for the history, well, a joint venture of Sky and AETN UK for the History Channel. And then I wanted to... I don't know, broaden my experience because I was very keen on not just entering politics first and gaining life experience, gaining more experience of business. And I applied for the role at WWE and managed to secure it, which is actually, despite you know, what you think of it, it is a very, very commercial organisation, quite cutthroat, it's American. So very different career trajectory than many of the Conservative MPs. Are you a fan of wrestling? Well, I'm not really, no. (laughs) Did you have to watch quite a lot before your interview? Do you need to know your stuff? Yeah, yeah. I'm always a big fan of preparing before you do an interview. So, yeah, they probably thought I was a bit more interested than I was. So at what point did you then decide, actually, I now have enough life experience? I presume from what you're saying that you didn't want to go in the, I suppose, the stereotypical uni spad Mm. MP route. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And then I thought it would be good to, to fight a seat that you know, virtually no chance if, if none of winning, which I did in 2010 in Wentworth and Dern in South Yorkshire. And I got that under my belt, which was helpful. So that was just before I started WWE. When you do um, a bit of a no-hope seat, though, that seat that you went for now is actually yeah. very close, isn't it? Between it is, it is. They ruined my reputation. I had it on my political CV as, you know, biggest increase in vote share, again, beating William Hay because he stood there. But, yeah. Yeah. Obviously, you're knocking on doors. Do you ever get the point that you think it might be a, almost like a Hollywood moment and actually at the count it's going to come together and you might do no, anything? No, I think, I, I think there is, is a quite... danger that some people have taught themselves into that in denial. Yeah. But no, and it's actually really good fun because you know you're not going to win, but you can just learn a load, you know, 
build a team and it's quite relaxed the pressure's not on as much so when it came to your current seat and the chip in the seat how is the selection process because it's interesting always hearing people's different experiences when it is I know no seat is a safe seat but when it obviously looks like a seat that should be a Tory win it can be quite competitive yeah I mean it definitely wasn't a seat that was labelled as that when I went for it because I won it off the Liberal Democrats it was a seat that had only been created in 2010 so there was not lots of history to look back at either so it was a bit of a gamble of you know will I actually win this seat I got selected in 2013 so good two and a, a bit years before the actual election even took place and I had got quite worried before I went for that session. I'd gone for a few others and I was concentrating on the things that I wasn't. So didn't go to Oxbridge, wasn't a lawyer, wasn't this. And you kept meeting these other candidates that ticked all of those boxes. I kept thinking, I'm never going to get a seat. And when I went to Chippenham, I just decided to completely be myself and sort of tell a few jokes and be quite relaxed. And I also felt completely at home. So whilst I'm from the northwest of England and the seat is in the southwest, it's very similar to where I'm from. Small market towns, villages, really friendly people. And then we had the final, and in their wisdom, they decided to have five candidates and start the selection quite late. And given the age demographic was really old, by the time we were finishing, they were falling asleep. <laughs> so it was quite an interesting process. So you need something to like, keep them awake when you suppose. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you get selected, you win yep. your seat, and then you enter Parliament. What surprises you? This is uh, 2015, so it's almost just before politics gets yeah. quite crazy. <laughs> Well, I think you know, when you start in Parliament, any MP that doesn't acknowledge that they're quite overwhelmed when they start wouldn't be telling the truth because it's like no other role. There's no job that could really prepare you to be an MP. You've got your responsibilities in your constituency. You've got a lot going on in Parliament. You've got to set up an office. You've got to learn a lot. But obviously, the last few years have been quite different than any MP really expected. We've had Brexit. We've had the pandemic. We've had a number of prime ministers. So it's been keeping us on our toes shall we say but at the same time you know huge honour and absolutely amazing and the bit I really really passionately love in particular is the constituency side and supporting local people and doing lots of events and street surgeries and I go to all the village fates with a stand and I just love all of that. And you describe being an MP almost as a way of life. Yes Um, I think it is. Is that just because the fact that you you are in a situation where you're spread between two places and I think because if you're a good MP you should never really switch off and you're doing it at the weekend you're doing it in the evening I always say to people that want to be an MP don't do it if you want to do it if you have to it should be like a calling you should because it is quite intense and all involved if you're doing it in the correct way now I mentioned in the introduction your current role but obviously yeah. there are quite a few steps to get to it so, so I wondered um was you enter parliament it's been something you think about for some time but the process of promotion in politics is always much more complicated. <laughs> so how did you first go about, you were on the select committee yep. and then you became a government whip. Mm-hmm. Did you want to pursue education early on? Yeah, so education is my passion. I believe strongly in creating opportunities. That's sort of the basis of my conservatism. It was in my maiden speech that I said, I think MPs are more like doorkeepers. So they should be opening doors for people and creating those life chances. And I, I genuinely believe in individuals. And I think if you give people the tools and the skills, they, they will flourish. And a key way to do that is via education. It's the fundamental building block, if you like, and springboard in life and so I wanted to join the education committee to be part of that and thank goodness you know I'm an education minister now as well which is amazing because I can be part of that change. You had a stint in the whips office Mm. it's lots of people who don't know how the whips office works it seems I don't want to say dark arts (laughs) black book kind of like keeping checks on people Mm. what is it like in recent years I mean how did you find it it's it seems that 
I still think maybe the stereotype of the Whips office is quite different to how yeah. it looks today. I really wanted to go into the Whips office, actually, because like you just um, outlined then, you don't really know what's going on. So when they're on the front bench, they're writing these notes, and you're thinking, well, what are they writing? What are they looking for with ministers? What, you know, how does this actually work in terms of the, the timetable of Parliament, etc.? And I felt it would make me a better... MP because I'd understand Westminster better and would be able to deliver better for my constituents and I think that is true actually of my experience I used it as a vehicle as well to be able to really put forward the views of the people that I had in my flock and make sure that they got access to the ministers they got their voice heard so I think an effective whip is also a conduit between the parliamentary party and those that are in a position that are making departmental decisions. I'm very nosy, so I think I'd enjoy being a yeah. in that sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you get to know your lots you, for your colleagues. You, you, you know more about your own flaw. I think the one that really knows the lot is the chief whip, so yeah. that would be the ultimate if you're really nosy. Yeah, that's one to strive for for me. You then moved to the Department of Education after yeah. that, and you were university's minister before your most recent move. Mm-hmm. When it comes to, I suppose, higher education, you've spoken about your passion. What do you think are the most pressing issues? Because when you look at what the government's doing, we can talk about which is part of your brief but there's also you know freedom of speech is something the government's very keen yeah. on then we hear about leveling up and Michael Gove who's now obviously leading that very keen to put universities mm-hmm. in that so what stands out to you? So there are a number of priorities yeah. I would say obviously everything centres around leveling up and that is the key part of the agenda that we were elected on in the last manifesto but free speech as you point out is an important issue when I went to university it wasn't as widespread in terms of the problems that we're seeing today on our campuses I'm leading through the bill, we're waiting our next stage in the, in the Commons, and it will be designed to ensure that we really tackle this problem head on, because although it, it, we have legislation at the moment, it doesn't have the, the teeth attached. So that's one of the issues, and we've seen that very topically in cases like Kathleen Stock, etc., and what happened to LSE the other day. But there are a number of issues that we do want to address with our education system. I say fundamental to everything is our skills revolution. And I don't think it's overplaying it, calling it a skills revolution. And what that actually means is really investing heavily in further education and the alternative routes, apprenticeships, going to an IOT, doing those other routes and making sure that not only do we destigmatize them, but we raise the quality bar and so that individuals have a, a true choice here. And then making our higher education system much more flexible, which is via our lifelong learning entitlement. Bit of a mouthful, but what it actually means is that an individual will get a four-year learning account from 25. They'll then be able to use that in building blocks. So they could do one module, which could be a term at a university or a further education college in a higher technical qualification And they might do that later on in life to upskill and to reskill. And that is, by very essence, focusing much more on outcomes. I think we need to get away from a society where we're constantly focusing on how many individuals have we got into university and more, okay, where did they end up? Did they get graduate jobs? Did they complete their course? Did it get them where they thought it would? Was it completely transparent? Did they have all that information at their fingertips? So there is a heck of a lot to do, but it's really, really exciting because it will have a tangible impact on the outcomes of individuals, their life chances, and will be fundamental to achieving levelling up, basically. And you were university minister, you talking about higher education and further education I wondered when it comes to FE that I think also sometimes tech qualifications it can Mm. feel as though it's lots of politicians saying they're really great but when you look at what they studied themselves it doesn't correspond to it so I wondered how how do you think the government can actually go about promoting these things more do you think it is being able to look and say well 
if you do this apprenticeship, you get to X. If you do, you know, if you go to further education, you get to this. And if you go to this university, actually, it might not be worth it. I wondered, because I think it can be a little bit in mm. terms of perception. Yeah, I think there's a variety of ways. Definitely, you need more transparency. So when individuals make a decision, they make an informed choice or as much information as they possibly can have but also you do need role models so like you say most politicians have done the traditional route not all of them but most of them have but that's why it's important that we are getting into our schools and our colleges with with role models highlighting the routes that are available and of course if we look back 20 30 years there weren't the same opportunities in further education that's why we're devising new courses like t levels which are employer-led and will be outcome focused that's why apprenticeships now are employer-led and and co-written by them to ensure that they produce the right results. So there's a lot of reform happening and making sure that individuals know those options, not just students themselves, but also teachers, empowering teachers to have the information to enable students because they're more likely to have done those traditional routes as well. Now, one of the things being reported in the media at the moment, which might might be something you know you can comment until it's confirmed, but it's this idea that the rate at which you pay back your student loan could be changing. And I just wondered, I suppose... If that is not confirmed yet, <laughs> bigger picture, there does seem to be this kind of push from the opposition to say that this government doesn't support young people or punishes young people. You know, if you look at NI, it could be tricky of your student loan. And I just wondered what your counter was to that. Yeah, I mean, despite media claims on this one, yeah. we haven't made any policy yeah. announcements. We've been very upfront that we've been considering everything that was in the Augur report, which looked at the reform of higher education and alignment with technical education. And I think it's important that we do that. Any responsible government should take recommendations on board from a report, do the due diligence. And of course, we've been considering other ideas put forward by by commentators and we will respond shortly. But our key goals there, people should be reassured, is making sure that our higher education system is sustainable in the long term, that we're investing in it, that we're continuing to raise up the quality and that the alternatives, as I spoke about before, are there of a high quality product that may be the better option for some individuals, depending on where they want to end up. Now, Nadim Sahori is now Education mm-hmm. Secretary. Previously, it was Gavin Williamson. And I just wondered, because I noticed a bit, there was, there was an interview Gavin Williamson did where I don't think he said what his A-levels were. And mm-hmm. everyone got very, <laughs> <laughs> this is shocking. But as in, I don't think Gavin Williamson mind saying this in the sense that, actually, if you look at his higher education background, it's not the Oxbridge look of certain mm-hmm. people. And I just wondered if you think maybe, I don't know if you think, I sometimes find this a little bit of snobbery of in Westminster. Media MPs, I, I'm not saying it's, you know, just, you know, a specific party against, you know, if someone does well and they don't have great grades. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's something you've picked up on or something we need to tackle if we're talking about moving a bit away from university. Yeah, I mean, I think these things are much more attached to the Westminster bubble. Yeah. The reality is most people didn't go to Oxbridge. Yeah. They went to various other universities and colleges and Oxbridge is not the best option for everybody even if they have the right ability and attainment of course I would encourage everybody to really work hard and to get the very best grades that they're capable of when I you know talk to school children in my constituency I always say you know stay committed to what you want to do and work really really hard and don't let anybody tell you you can't do it do you find politics feels a little bit less toxic now there's not a hung parliament I don't know now that there is a majority yeah probably not on Twitter Um, (laughs) and I look at that every morning check I think your... that's quite quite toxic yeah, do you check your mentions <laughs> yeah I probably shouldn't oh, no, some no, days no, I don't yeah. and sometimes I do um <laughs> but yeah in Westminster it's, it's a totally different environment than it was before and I suppose just on that I just wondered as in it's obviously been a really difficult month for MPs the loss of Sir David Amos mm. 
How do you find, I suppose, MP security? And is it something you worry about actively? I think it's important that everybody is vigilant and they're sort of aware of people around them and, and think about the things they do. But it's, it's fundamental to our democracy that MPs are out and about and accessible. And I've always gone the extra mile to try and achieve that. Like I say, you know, having a stand at village fates and events and things like that and supermarkets and really the view I've always took is my parents would never dream of contacting their MP, even if the worst possible thing happened and their MP could help them. And in fact, there have been occasions where I've been like, why don't you contact your MP? And they're like, well, I can't do that. So I always think you, you almost need the MP to go to them. So that's why I always try and go out and about. And I often have people that pass me and they say, oh, no, no, I'm fine. And then they come back and be like, actually, while you're here. And I think it would be really sad if MPs stop doing those types of things, or if I did, because my constituents won't be getting the right level of service then. And we can't let these people win that want to try and destroy our democracy. And is that because people like your parents worry about wasting someone's time? Yeah, I think also not every MP is is that approachable. People have an image of an MP of being something that might not necessarily be, be true. And yeah, they might worry about their time. They might get a bit nervous as well about contacting an MP. So I think it's breaking down some of those barriers to help people. And then um, one question we kind of do to end this podcast of everyone is just, you know, what is the worst advice mm. you've ever been given? You can also give us the best advice if you want. Uh, you can give us a medley. Probably got two. So just before the 19 election, we were thinking of getting a cat, which my mum my strongly advised against. And then we decided in the end to get two cats and a dog all at the same time. And everybody told us we were mad. Just for, And that actually turned out for the best though and I wouldn't swap my animals at all the other thing is the worst advice I've ever given myself probably is I think it was about 2014 or 13 so when I was the candidate for Chippenham and I wanted to it's quite hard when you're the candidate to get in the media and local press because you're just somebody who wants to be an MP and so I saw an advert for a chili eating competition in Melksham and I thought I love chilies you know I can handle heat that'll be brilliant I can get some media And then I thought, well, I'm going to have to win, though. And so what I did was I entered this chili eating competition, sat down. Woman to my right turned out to be a person that tours the country doing chili eating competitions. And the woman to my left was like, we've got to win at all costs. So I thought, oh, no, I'm in for it here. And you had to eat the entire chili because there's a chili farm in my constituency. I took the prime minister once. He, he didn't handle the chili as well as me. Right, we did, but just didn't cope well with it. And you have to eat the entire chili and hold up the, the end. And then because these other two women won't give up, and I couldn't give up because I had to win. I couldn't be the one that lost before I even stand for election. We had to go round after round until somebody would give up. And what I hadn't quite appreciated was the pain that this chili eating would cause. So it makes your eyes water. Then you touch your eyes, you get the chili in your eyes. Awful. So I won it. We, we, in the end, we had to call it like um, a triple draw. And I was ill for days, ill for days. Like you can't move the pain. So I would highly recommend nobody ever do that. <laughs> I think that's the best answer we ever had. Um, did, you, did you negotiate as a free that it was time to like step away from the chili? Well, they ran out of chilies to give oh, us, right. so they just had to then. Yeah. Oh, no, I was but we'd eaten had... like five of the world's hottest at that point. <laughs> yeah, so. well, exactly. I was wondering how the stand down <laughs> <Yeah>. happened. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the squid game style. And, and it didn't really work out that well because the paper did get a picture of me that they put in the paper, but it was an awful picture because my eyes were running, my nose was running, I looked red in the face, so I'm not sure it actually got me any support. I think people would have worked out you were a trooper. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Michelle. Thanks for joining today.